0: An hour of truth for the battered but proud people of the Empire State. From the financial and entertainment epicenter of New York City to the sleeping and empty small cities and towns of upstate, which once bustled with manufacturing, mining, and farming. We all know from inspiration, history, and nature, we deserve a return to the success and growth of generations past, a birthright being squandered by corruption in Albany the depredations of an insecure, scheming mountebank posing as governor, who loathes both us and himself. As liberty beckoned to enslaved peoples behind the Iron Curtain via American broadcasts after World War II, we now say, believe, rise,
1: and join us. Welcome to Radio Free New York. Hey guys, welcome to Radio Free New York. I'm your host, Andrew Hollister, and we've got uh, Bob Savage here with us as well.
0: Hello all from House Arrest.
1: Yeah, from House Arrest. That's right. And, you know, I tell you what, I, I was listening to Cuomo, unfortunately, um, before the show went live. And I, I can't figure out if if he's trying to give any indication that things are going to lighten up or not. I think he's trying to give the exact opposite i th- I think he's trying to say, uh this is going to take even longer
0: well, I haven't heard uh any he's on now, so obviously I can't listen to him, but uh he seems to be vacillating back and forth between you know we've got to we've got to open things up and and we have to make sure that we have you know the the universal excuse that the left is now adopting is everybody's got to get tested. We got to test people, you know yeah. we got to make sure everybody's tested tested testing, testing. well, who knows how long that's going to take? Uh, there is a uh, program apparently launched to test randomly 3,000 New Yorkers. I'm not sure that that's a valid sample size. If you're going to try to extrapolate that out over a population of 18 million, uh, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I don't know. I'm not a statistician, but uh, I I'm suspicious of that because I think that that is has a high likelihood of being used as a pretense for keeping everything closed longer.
1: Yeah, could could be, and you know what's interesting is, um, yesterday Cuomo did announce that New York State has an FDA-approved antibody test now. Um, yeah, I think that's which,
0: what he's, That's what they're talking about using. That, that's what yeah, the, yeah. the source of the three thousand tests is going to be.
1: Yeah, and it's pretty interesting because I there there wasn't really much information about it, but when they say New York, does that mean New York State Health Department? like created this test? Do they work with a private entity? You know, um, some of that information wasn't available or clear, which to me just leaves more questions than answers. Yeah,
0: I think we need more information on that. We need to know, you know, how the sample is is, uh, is generated. Like, for example, I guess they're going to use grocery stores in Buffalo. So oh, how does So how does that happen? I mean, do they put a sign up? the grocery store is there something on the grocery store website uh how many people are they going to take from you know any given geographic area uh is the is the three thousand going to be evenly distributed across the state or is there going to be uh, a preponderance of testing in new york city where the virus has had the you know the most virulence uh all all these questions you know
1: yeah yeah well i think today um what Cuomo was saying during his live stream seemed to be things are going to be pretty well focused on New York City and, you know, which I think most of us upstate expected. Um, but in his defense, he also said, you know, New York City has the most infections, which is also true. Um, so I would... I would think that the appropriate way to do it would be to divide it up based on either population or infections or at-risk population, um, and percentage it out and and spread it according to you know some sort of algorithm with that. Um, but uh, I think there's a lot more questions than answers, um, and and hopefully we get more answers soon because a lot of his addresses lately. Have, uh, have just been kind of talking and conversation more so than policy and what's really going on.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of slides you see up there about, you know, saying basic truisms like we all have to watch out for each other. We need to wash our hands. We need to make sure that everybody stays healthy, blah, 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 blah. That's not helpful. We have a the the crux of this whole argument is this balancing act between trying to keep the coronavirus from spreading and being a larger public health emergency than it is now, and trying to protect the economic integrity of uh, of the of the folks out there. So this is that's the crux that's the balancing act that has to take place, and it's admittedly a difficult one. But the left is not happy about. The trajectory of things right now, because what it looks like increasingly with the passage of time is that this thing is winding down, that the infection rate is going down, that the deaths are going down, the hospitalizations are going down, and it also looks suspiciously like uh, if you if you do a study of all of the influenza epidemics uh, in recent history, they all show pretty much a history of six to eight weeks where you have an initial onslaught. An onset of this infection that is uh, very virulent, and uh, there's no immunity. Nobody has any immunity, and that's when the bug is fresh and at its most potent. So that's when you suddenly have a, a, a big influx of uh, of uh, mor- mortalities uh, among the the vulnerable population. So you know the people who have other compromising health factors. So then that uh, gets everything rolling. And then as the thing disseminates through the general population, it mutates and it becomes less and less virulent. So you see it peak about six weeks in, and then it really starts to dissipate about eight weeks in, which is where we're headed now. I think if you look, if, if we peg this thing as somewhere in February as having launched, you know, we're somewhere in that uh, six-day week range. And the left doesn't like that because this thing is Christmas morning for statists. This whole corona emergency, as you know.
1: Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. And and actually, I'm glad that you mentioned other um, influenza outbreaks because later in the show, we're actually going to talk about um, Spanish flu and and the overlaps and the differences. Because as I was looking through here, I think that the, the only other time I could find in history and, – and if somebody knows differently, please feel free to comment, call in – um, that we've had this level of government response, I believe, was Spanish flu in 1918. Um, so we're going to talk about some of the similarities, some of the differences, but first I want to make sure I give you guys the numbers as of today. Um, today's Monday, by the way, for those of you who might uh, be struggling to keep track of the days of the week. Today's Monday. I know for me, uh, I always had to check the calendar to make sure I know which days I'm on the air. Um, so as of right now, New York state has, uh, a little more than 242,000 confirmed cases. Um, that's up about 50,000 from last week. Um, we have about 14,000 deaths right now in New York. It's actually a little less than 14,000. That's up about 4,000 deaths from last week. Um, What's interesting to me is that uh, about ten thousand of these deaths are from New York City. Only four thousand are from upstate, uh, which makes sense because New York City's got a lot more population. They're also um, very, very densely populated, so that that makes sense. Okay, I have two questions real quick. Um, uh, for first, to... here, okay. you know, deaths doubled as of last week. I'm sorry, say it again. Nationwide, but that number I want to say is still fairly low.
0: Okay. Can you hear me, Andrew? uh, Because our connection is a little sketchy right now.
1: Yep. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead.
0: Okay. Uh, The the question I had was, you said, what, 10,000 in uh, New York City or Uh, 14,000?
1: 10,000 in New York City, 14,000 total when you include the upstate number. In in the
0: state. Okay. Now, does the 10,000 include the 3,700 that uh, de Blasio insisted be added to that total, uh, even though they weren't tested? They were presumed, quote, presumed. Uh, corona cases.
1: I don't believe so because last week um, the numbers were were about. I could be wrong. It didn't state that those are just the numbers off of the uh hey bob
0: uh bob d'angelo in the uh, control room i think what we need to do is go to break here and see if you can re-establish this connection with andrew because he's bouncing all over the place andrew if you can hear me having a little problem with the uh, clean feed so uh, we'll be back with more on radio free new york on this great radio station thanks for joining us New York. all right let's deposit right. 25 cents more and see if we can get uh, three more minutes of andrew Hollister.
1: yeah did we make it can you guys hear me all right that uh, sounds good now beautiful hopefully uh hopefully that doesn't happen again I, I tell you what my spectrum connection has been terribly unreliable uh with all this uh quarantine stuff going on and, and i've even got the business class so supposedly i'm supposed to have that prioritized traffic but it uh Doesn't always seem to be keeping up.
0: Wasn't very prioritized last quarter hour, let me tell you (laughs)
1: one.
0: You were all over the place. But anyway, the question I was asking you, uh, I don't think we got a reply, at least not one that we could hear. Uh, You don't know whether the 10,000 includes the 3,700 that Bill de Blasio ordered uh, added to the total even though they were never tested. They were just, quote, presumed COVID positive.
1: Mm, no, I I don't know if that number includes that or not. Um if it does, then that could potentially put New York City at very close to the numbers of upstate. They'd be almost equal. Um so yeah, that's that's an interesting question. I I don't have the answer to that one.
0: Yeah, okay. Well, it's just something for for folks to consider. And also we know that the there's People are becoming increasingly suspicious about whether these these covid figures are these the books are being cooked uh, because we're, we have all this anecdotal evidence from the field that uh, that that people are being classed as covid deaths that, you know, there are people who uh, they're first of all, they're they're very elderly. They may be morbidly obese. They may have all kinds of other health compromising conditions such as, you know, uh CHF, uh, you know, um, COPD. They may have diabetes. Uh, they may have, you know, uncontrolled high blood pressure. But they test positive for COVID, and so then the cause of death goes on the death certificate as COVID.
1: Yeah, and in those cases specifically, I I could even see the medical argument for that like if they didn't get COVID would they have lived another two or three years you know even with those health conditions but the ones that people have brought up where somebody gets into a car accident and they blame it on COVID or something like that that um I I have an issue with but you know as somebody who is an EMT there were certainly times we'd come across somebody who um maybe had a heart condition or you know something like that and their cause of death could have been, you know, something that normally wouldn't kill somebody because the two combined gave, you know, aggravated their condition enough to kill them. That, yeah, the, that makes sense to me, but the car accidents, not so much.
0: Right. The legal concept is what's called proximate cause. In other words, what what is the most, um, you know, in, in terms of time and Severity, what is the most dominant factor to cause some kind of adverse effect? Approximate Pro, uh, cause is what the thing is. And and there's, there's an awful lot of directives uh, uh, aimed at the medical community saying that, you know, under this circumstance, this circumstance, this circumstance, and 25 other circumstances, uh, you presume COVID uh, presence in the case and you classify it as a COVID case. Well, that's illogical because... We're trying to get to the bottom of this. this, Are are we incentivizing the medical community to classify questionable cases as COVID?
1: Yeah, and I think that's a, a big question, and I suspect this is why we're doing so much testing in New York State. I don't recall if I've mentioned this before or not. Um, but you know, Governor Cuomo jumping on getting as much testing done as possible and almost like a race to see who can have the most COVID cases, um really rubs me in a way of sure, there's a public health safety piece to this, absolutely hundred percent we should know about it. Um, but then I also kind of feel like they're using this as a way to ask for more money. We already knew that New York State was six billion in the hole and you're starting to see it kind of come out where Cuomo says, "Hey, with the last package, you know, this state got call it $29,000 per COVID patient whereas we got 600 bucks per COVID patient or or something along those lines when he talks about budgeting." And my thought is they're pushing the testing so hard because at the end of the day, New York state wants to go to the federal government and go to the media and go everywhere else and say hey, look, we have the most cases, we need the most funding. Um, when really, we need the most funding because we've ran a deficit for years and we're so deep in the hole, we're just totally screwed financially and we need a bailout. Well, I'm, yeah, um, I'm,
0: I'm tired of listening to Cuomo, Cuomo whine about, uh, about COVID issues. First of all, he's complained bitterly that uh, you know, he wasn't getting help from the federal government. He needed 40,000 ventilators. So we sent him a bunch of ventilators and uh, what, did he, what did he wind up using? He's used 5,000 ventilators. And I don't think there's anything within reason that he's asked for from the federal government that they have not provided. The the the, the, the problem is not the cost, so much the cost of treating these COVID patients as it is, as you have suggested, of deficit spending, you know, irresponsible budgeting, you know, running deficit after deficit, year after year after year. and And also he's got a self-inflicted wound in that he has chosen to, take draconian measures to shut the state down cutting his tax revenues drastically so the six billion dollar figure you mentioned earlier in this segment really is ballooned to about 16 billion
1: yeah yeah no absolutely that number is huge now like new york state is in such a bad spot and i i don't know where other states are to be honest that's something i should look at to see Um, How much the deficits have increased in other states. But I would suspect that our deficit has increased by a significantly higher percentage than other states because, you know, a lot of sales tax isn't happening because revenues aren't flowing, payroll tax isn't coming in, Um, income tax isn't coming in. Like all, all these things that the government uses to collect money during a normal day, if you will. Um, A lot of that stuff has been minimized to the absolute minimum. So, yeah, I mean, you've got trickles of money. And New York State is pushing off the filing dates for taxes, so the money that they would have gotten is being pushed off later anyways. Um, Now, us at at my company, we, we filed our sales tax. We paid it even though the deadline was extended. Um, because our our thought was you know we we don 't want this money sitting here and then have to owe the state money later and then you know when the state chases you for money that 's not a good thing let me tell you yeah it's a it 's a situation you do not want to be in um but there 's a lot of companies that were in a situation where that that 's just not possible so But what I do want to talk about, and I'll kind of intro this up and cue this up for us, is the flu in general and the Spanish flu and how there are similarities. I mean, some of the things that happened uh, during the Spanish flu of 1918... Um, are happening here with coronavirus in terms of government shutting things down, government mandating things. Um, And I want to compare and contrast some of the differences and some of the um, similarities because I think one of the things that we talk about often, maybe not as often as we should, um, is that history repeats itself. And if we don't look at history and we don't see how things were handled or or how things carried out in history – chances are pretty good we're gonna repeat it maybe make the same mistakes uh, maybe there are things we could have learned from that we haven't uh, that sort of thing so that's why I think it's important we talk about this um, but first before that I I want to just talk about what the flu is because I, I found out a surprising number of people just think the flu is actually the common cold and and they didn't really know that there's a difference so I, I figured I'd just you know share that with you guys Um So the flu is also known as influenza, Um, is a virus that attacks the respiratory system. It's highly contagious, and it's transmitted when somebody coughs, sneezes, Uh, apparently even talking. You can actually um, infect somebody, and it's because there's little respiratory droplets and when those, when those respiratory droplets you know, go on somebody else, and if they get into something like your eyes or your mouth or, or something like that, um, you can then get infected. Yeah, if, say if it, don't spray it, man. In. Yeah, exactly. Say it don't spray it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but these, these droplets are so small that even if you weren't, you know, necessarily spitting when you talk, um, you could theoretically infect somebody that's within about two to three feet of you. Now a cough or a sneeze especially can, can travel much further. Um, but you know, even talking, which I think a lot of people assume like, oh, if I'm just talking to somebody but I'm not touching them, we're good. Well, it, it does depend on how close you are, which is why you hear often that six feet distance, um, because that's kind of generally a safe distance. Um, if somebody sneezed on you, even from six feet away, chances are you're going to get uh, covered with those droplets, which is just really disgusting, to be honest. Um so we have a flu season that normally runs from late fall to spring. This is pretty normal. This is typical, you know, especially if you have kids, you're pretty well aware of this. Um I'll I'll be honest. I'll I'll say this on air and you know, hopefully nobody jumps on me for this, but I haven't had a flu shot and I can't even remember how long. I'm not in a high-risk population for flu, so as a result, you know, when I get asked, do you want a flu shot? I, I typically say no, save it for the next person who's at risk. Um, and there's there's a lot of controversy over flu shots, anyways. Like they're only what thirty to forty percent effective. Yeah, it depends and it's on very who you well talk testing. to. Uh, this
0: uh, this past year was not a good one. Uh, I think the numbers there were. <laughs> I, do you hear numbers between forty and sixty percent effective? Uh, I gotta believe probably knowing the number of people who got flu, probably closer to you know forty to fifty percent.
1: Yeah. 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 And they each year it's a little different. Right. So they don't have a long term time to create a vaccine for that specific strain that year. So there's there's just less testing. There's less time to develop it. There's a whole bunch of factors. Well, they have to guess. Um,
0: Basically, it's a moving target. And they they try to predict what the uh, you know, what the the strain is going to be. And sometimes uh, they sometimes they hit the bullseye and sometimes they don't.
1: Yep, yep. Uh, usually 200,000 people get it, um, and there's 3,000 to 50,000 deaths in the U.S. So so that's the flu. We're going to take our break. When we come back, we're going to talk about Spanish flu and overlaps with coronavirus. You're listening to Radio Free New York. We'll be back in a moment. Send a shout out to our friends at the uh, WACK
0: stations in Newark. Uh, 1420 AM, 96.9 FM, and down in the twin tiers of Elmira in northern Pennsylvania, The Patriot, 1230 and 1450, also 106.9 in the south part of Elmira. We'll be back.
1: You're listening to Radio Free New York. Right. Welcome back to Radio Free New York. I'm your host, Andrew Hollister. And uh, what we're going to talk about a little bit, we're going to talk about the Spanish flu. It um, came about in 1918, and I-, I think it's it's interesting to see the overlap. And a couple of the things we've talked about on the show, especially specific to coronavirus, is the extreme government action and overreach Due to coronavirus. Um and I was trying to find some times in US history that uh that that we had some similar stuff going on. And Spanish flu seemed to be the one that lined up the best. Um I, I didn't really see anything else. And Bob, I don't know if you're aware of any other time in US history that government's taken this this type of action.
0: Uh, There was a big cholera epidemic way, way back, uh, like in the 1830s. It uh, affected the digging of the Erie Canal. I know about that. Uh, And there was – it was very – you know, it's an instructive uh, thing to look up and read about. Uh, Samuel Hopkins Adams did a short story about it, uh, oh, I don't know, probably 50, 60 years ago. But it it was very very similar to, you know, to to what's going on now. You you had government – You know, swooping in and uh, issuing draconian regulations. Uh, There's a lot of uh, of, of pretty foolish medical experiments going on uh, because, of course, they didn't understand infectious disease very well back then. But the human response was was eerily similar.
1: Mm, Yeah, yeah. So, so Spanish flu, um, I'll, I'll give you guys just a little bit of background on it, and then and then we can talk about the similarities here. So Spanish flu, which I, I did not know this. I always just knew it as Spanish flu. Spanish flu is actually an H1N1 virus. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I was not aware of that. And so obviously that created a, a pandemic. We had a second pandemic of H1N1 in 2009, which – feels very recent. I remember when all that was happening, it was called swine flu. Um, but it was essentially a, a similar virus between the two. So I, I wasn't aware of that. Um, learned something new while I was doing this research for you guys. Um, so Spanish flu, which was an H1N1 virus, you know, it came about January of 1918 and carried through to December of 1920. So, so two years, You know, the world battled this flu, um infected about 500 million people which was about a third of the world's population at the time um and the death toll is <laughs> when you see these numbers it it's really um shows you how different record keeping has been and how far we've come because they've estimated between 17 million and fifty million people who died from Spanish flu, but possibly as high as a hundred million so <laughs> there's there's a pretty big gap here we're talking seventeen million to a hundred million um that's a huge swing i it, and it's it really comes down to like places like China and other countries did not record things very well um, even in the United States there was a lot of um Oh, what's the right word for it? Like denial of what was going on. And, and a lot of that was actually pressed by the government. we're going to talk about that a little bit later. Um, so record keeping just wasn't great, which leaves us with this 83 million uh, death discrepancy where it's unknown how many people died.
0: I think generally speaking, the number that's accepted is somewhere around 50 million.
1: Yeah, I, I think that that's probably true. Um, I was looking at, like, the CDC website to see what they published. Um, it, you know, so it was kind of, they said between 17 and 50 million, and, and some of the information that was given is because China didn't really report numbers, so they had to kind of, like, guesstimate, um, based on population, what what China's numbers were. Um, but all this was going on, you know, at and around World War I, And one of the first things that happened with this um, is that countries were censoring the Spanish flu and pretending that it wasn't happening. Um, The reason it was named Spanish flu wasn't even because it originated in Spain. It was named Spanish flu because Spain was sitting there neutral and they allowed the media to report on it. So, they were just the only country reporting on it and acknowledging that this flu existed. Um, and that's how it got known as the Spanish flu. Um, it, it spread very quickly, especially because of the war, you know, troops being in very close quarters, hospitals being full in close quarters. Um, there was kind of new and more readily available transportation. Obviously, nothing compared to what we have now, but for that time, it was very high. Um, and something that I found very interesting was the high risk population was was not the same as what coronavirus has so when we talk about you know high risk population for coronavirus we 're talking about people who are elderly and have additional underlying conditions um, with Spanish flu, it was actually people in their twenties, and people in their twenties actually accounted for more than half the deaths. And the highest risk were actually um, pregnant women in their 20s, and they were the most likely to die. 99% of the deaths were people under the age of 65.
0: Wasn't that largely because of the uh, returning troops? The Expeditionary Force came back from Europe from World War I, and and they brought it back with them? In large numbers, yeah,
1: no, absolutely, and and if you look at you know troops and the military and stuff, they're going to be a younger population. Um, I can't imagine many people over the age of sixty five were deploying to Europe, you know, as a, as a soldier. So, so the other thing that that's pretty interesting, and this is all just kind of like background information to kind of like paint this picture for you guys. Um, there was actually a second wave of the Spanish flu. And the first wave wasn't actually as big of a deal. It was the second wave that killed 60 to 70% of the people. Um, That actually happened in the fall, uh, you know, into winter, September to January. And and that was actually the deadly portion of this virus. Um, Before then, it was like, you know, it was still a big deal, but it became a much greater deal in the fall. Um, and, And so you hear sometimes people talk about like what if coronavirus comes back in the fall to be honest i i didn't know much about viruses resurfacing later um so i was one of the people kind of wondering why people are talking about that this is why like viruses can um come back in the fall after they've kind of like settled through the spring season um so what, what you found is communities got closed. You know, stores, uh, they required customers to leave their orders outside. And, and this is, you know, 1918 and 1919. I mean, they had curbside to go 100 years ago. Like, you know, they just didn't have apps and smartphones to do it. Um, healthcare workers at, at times um, couldn't actually tend to the sick because they themselves were so sick uh, they couldn't help. They had people who were grave diggers. They couldn't bury the dead because they were so sick. Um, and what ultimately ended up happening is they, they started digging mass graves with what they called steam shovels. Um, and, and they ended up having to, to bury people in mass as this happened. Um, so Spanish flu was, was definitely like a huge worldwide issue um, that impacted, you know, everybody across the globe. Um, but I think the important things that we're going to talk about are the actions that the government actually took at the time. Um, some of this to reduce the spread, some of this to just protect public image. Um, I think it's important for us to look at these things and be skeptical of what's happening now and see if history is indeed repeating itself or not. Because um, I guarantee you, people in government— have already kind of looked at some of this stuff and they've made their decisions which things they're gonna do and what they're not gonna do. Um so but but before we go too too far on that, I, I do want to throw one more thing out there. Spitting on sidewalks was banned during the Spanish flu. Which is just wild to me. Um I didn't realize that was such a big problem. Alright, guys, you're listening to Radio Free New York. We'll be back in a moment. all right welcome back to radio free new york i'm your host andrew hollister we're talking about actions taken by the government during the spanish flu bob what do you think one of the first things the government um should do when there's a, an outbreak of an illness to protect the public
0: um hmm. uh, let's see they appoint a committee and uh and then they vote themselves a big salary
1: Oh, man, that, that, that New York State would definitely do that. Um, what the United States federal government did with Spanish flu is they did create a committee. They create a committee for public information headed by George Creel, um, who said, truth and falsehood are arbitrary terms. He goes on to say, oh, great it matters very little if it is true or false. So. Um, this became America's first propaganda machine. Exactly, I can see uh, yep. this coming. <laughs> yep, and it was essentially a license to lie to the American public. Um, so they started running all sorts of propaganda. Now, of course, they used the war as the justification for this. They said, "Well, you know, we need to make it illegal um, for any type of information to be published." That could, um, you know, make the United States look bad during a time of war. So, so all this came about, and they started just, you know, Spanish flu was was one of the biggest things. They they couldn't allow it to be um, talked about or shown that America has any type of weakness, um, or that it was even a danger to the American public. So so they started um going through with the media and and saying like you can't report on this you have to start saying things like this is just ordinary influenza with a different name and they started right from the get-go number one thing was lie to the american people. Uh so you know not not a good look um you know and it'll be interesting to see years from now when we look back at this the lies that the government has told us about this who lied what they lied about what they actually knew because none of us know right um we'll we'll find out eventually but we can expect that something similar has happened um either statewide government maybe federal government maybe a department in the FDA who knows um we'll we'll find out that they had information they knew about the information and they withheld it from the american people or or maybe they pointed us in the wrong direction purposely for some reason um so so that was thing number one um as things started to heat up though as things got bad the the country especially like state by state things the things started getting shut down um so i'd mentioned before spitting on the sidewalk Got banned. I I didn't realize that was a big thing. That must have been a big thing oh, back yeah. then. is Spinning yeah, yeah. on the sidewalks
0: in uh, bars, they had spittoons. These, yeah. these these brass jars that sat on the floor, and uh, you're supposed to spit in the uh, in the spittoon.
1: Well, there there you go. So that that was one of the first practices that started. Uh, you know, getting shut down was spitting on the sidewalks, um, and you see places like uh like St. Louis, Missouri. They shut down schools, movie theaters, and public gatherings were banned. Um, And interestingly enough, in contrast to Philadelphia, Philadelphia, they they went on with the whole, we're going to tell people that this is normal flu. And they actually held a parade called the Liberty Loan Parade. And it was attended by tens of thousands of people in Philadelphia. Um, they thought they were done with the flu the, and, you know, that everything was good to go, that there was no big deal. Um, at that parade, the disease spread um, so quickly. Then 10 days, over a thousand people were dead um, and 200,000 people were sick. And then then they closed the saloons. Then they closed the theaters. And by March, they had lost um, 15,000 people. But at the same time, the media was still there orchestrating, working with the federal government, and shutting down stories of the doctors who said, hey, this is a bad idea. We shouldn't do this. And the media just wouldn't run them. And ironically, the media, you would think— would be the people that would stand up and be like no we 're going to report good journalism we 're going to report the truth no they they like jumped at the opportunity to work with the federal government to lie to the American people they didn't just like not fight it, they actively worked with it to make it worse
0: after a hundred years things haven 't changed
1: yeah. yeah, no, they haven 't we're in the same exact spot you know we so we as americans we we haven 't really learned much from this proving Um, that uh,
0: technology changes but people don't people don't
1: yeah no absolutely um san francisco actually put together a a mandatory face mask wearing and if you were in public not wearing a face mask you were fined five dollars um which is the equivalent to about 85 dollars today. Um, which was still back then. That was like a lot of money. Like people didn't have five dollars, so that that was that was a big deal. Um, if you were caught in public, um, you were charged with disturb or caught in public without a mask, you were charged with disturbing the peace and fined five dollars. Um, and then we've got in October of 1918, Newark officials o- ordered all schools and businesses to shut down. Um, and department stores, they were deserted, Um, a bunch of organizations, they were all canceled, all social gatherings were postponed. And, and that is, you know, how, how all that went. So, so the, the question kind of is, you know, are, are we going to go through something similar with coronavirus? And I'm, I'm thinking the answer is no. Um, And that that's, Mostly based on some medical research from uh, you know doctors who have analyzed this a lot, and I could be totally wrong. I'm not a medical professional in in this sense of the terms, but I, I watched a couple doctors do an analysis of Spanish flu and coronavirus, um, and they they pointed out some really important things that's worth us knowing about. First is health treatments in 1918 were vastly different than they are today um you know a lot of the treatments involved uh whiskey bloodletting um you know that sort of stuff that we we now know is like i mean the whiskey's probably still good but but the rest of it you know not so much um things like disinfectants we we just have much more widely available now um they didn't really promote hand washing during the spanish flu they were much more focused on the spitting on the sidewalk than they were you know, hand-washing. Um, but they did promote social distancing. Um, and there was other things that maybe aren't so common. Like they had communal cups where people would share cups and other things. Um, you don't just, you don't see that as much here nowadays. Um, the other thing that was pretty interesting is they believed at the time that if you were outside, you couldn't get it. You could only get it if you were inside. Um which is kind of interesting because it really conflicts with the mask laws that were passed. Um, so, so I thought that was interesting that they made people wear masks in public. However, they also believed and promoted that if you're outside, you can't actually get it. Which, of course, was not true um they they probably didn't know that at the time though. that's weird
0: that's uh the exact opposite of uh of the cholera epidemic in the 1830s uh, night air was considered to be uh, very dangerous so sleep <laughs> sleeping with the windows open uh, during the cholera epidemic was considered a wanton solicitation of death
1: oh wow yeah no this was the opposite i was w- reading like old newspaper articles that were like, you have to leave all the windows open in your home so you don't get the Spanish flu. So yeah, that's actually really interesting how different they are. But the similarities I see is government really took the same type of control. You know, they, they took over freedom of speech. They, they shut down the press and, and we'll, we'll only find out if this sort of thing happened years and years from now. Um, if the government has had a censorship on the press or not, or on the hospitals or not, um, but definitely shutting down the economy, um, pressing for mask laws, which the CDC is now pushing for the federal government's pushing for state government has mandated, but there's no like fines or recourse right now, unless it's changed in the last maybe 48 hours, um, well, there's an so analogous role. Lot.
0: There's an analogous role of media going on now, like, like for example, you got the, Donald Trump is perceived as being this proponent of hydroxychloroquine, and so now the media, of course, is all ganging up on Trump, and and also on hydroxychloroquine as as some kind of quack treatment for COVID nineteen, which it is not.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I, it's it's very interesting to see. Um, how things are unfolding, right? And I think it's only going to get more and more interesting as time goes further and further along. You know, who knows how long this is going to last. Um, and when I say this, I don't necessarily mean the virus. I mean the government response to the virus. Um, how long before these test kits are widely available and the government says, ah, you know, just to be safe. Uh, you're you still can't go outside or maybe it gets worse than that you can only go outside four or five days a week I don't know all right guys you're listening to Radio Free New York thank you for joining me we'll be back same time same place tomorrow.